Indeed, Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching and listening to your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and so pry open our hearts that they would be docile to you, that they would be softened and willing to receive what you're what you have to say to your church this morning, I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is harboring bitterness or resentment and unforgiveness, that this morning, Lord, would be a day like the day they first believed because they will reconcile with you and perhaps a brother or sister in Christ. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would apply the gospel to their relationship with one another. Lord, teach us now from your word, be glorified in it, and make us a holy people because of it, all of it, for the praise and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for we pray it in his name, amen. Just one more week away from the Gospel of John, and next week we'll pick up. You remember last week we began studying together the biblical doctrine of forgiveness, and the question, what does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to forgive? How does a sinner ask for forgiveness? How and when should a person grant forgiveness? These are all relevant issues that the Word of God addresses with extraordinary clarity. And as I said last time, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to overstate the necessity and the importance of the doctrine of forgiveness. We are all sinners, even after the miracle of salvation, We all sin against God. We all sin against one another. I sin against my wife. I sin against my children. They sin against me. They sin against each other. It's just, I mean, dogs bark and fish swim and sinners sin. It's just the reality of the situation. But our problem is we tend to suppress that. We tend to hide it. We tend to act like we are incapable of sinning. And it sabotages our relationships with one another. Because the reality is we do sin, but if we don't apply the remedy of sin, namely the grace of forgiveness, then all of our relationships are inhibited and not what they could be. We know what a miserable existence it is to live in an unreconciled state. We know what it's like to live with a wife or a husband where uh, where their sin has been committed, uh, but no resolution has been sought or granted. We've seen and perhaps have even experienced the tension that engulfs a family when a teenager and his dad or mom live on opposite sides of an invisible wall. We've seen churches split because of their members' refusal to deal with sin in a manner that pleases the Lord. And most of the time, it doesn't have to be this way. Most of the time, it doesn't have to be this way. The only exceptions are in those, in those occasions where you are seeking to be reconciled with the other person and they are resistant. And in that case, the Apostle Paul would say, inasmuch as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But I wonder how seriously we take that. I wonder how seriously we take it when we are at odds with another person. Perhaps they've sinned against you or you have sinned against them. Do you see the necessity of making that right? Do you understand what God, what God requires you to do, whether you are the offender or the offended party? Because there is a remedy for sin. There is a remedy for broken relationships. 
and it comes to us from God through Christ. And it is called grace, and more specifically, it is the grace of forgiveness. The grace of forgiveness. Now, last week, we talked about the first kind of forgiveness, and I'm going to review a little bit of that and add some more to it this week because it's so extremely important. We called it transactional forgiveness. Now, I understand that that's not a term we get from the Bible, but I, I give it that term simply because there are, there are places in Scripture that talk about a certain kind of forgiveness as distinguished from another kind of forgiveness, and it's helpful just to put uh, descriptive terms on it. So the first one is transactional forgiveness. This is one of the two major forms of forgiveness. And we invested all of our time last week speaking exclusively about this kind of forgiveness. If you didn't listen to it, uh, you can hear it on the website or on the app or on Sermon Audio or wherever you can find it. Uh, But I would encourage you to listen to it. The idea of transactional forgiveness comes to us from Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 17. Now, you're in Mark chapter 11 if you were following the scripture reading. And hold your finger there because we'll be back. But flip over to Luke chapter 17 and let's just be reminded of what our Lord teaches. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. Jesus says this, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a single day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Forgive him. Now, we call this transactional forgiveness because there is a God-ordained transaction that takes place between two people. In transactional forgiveness, both people are involved, not just in the sin, but in the reconciliation. It's like, it's like, um, it's not so much like purchasing something at a grocery store, it's more like canceling the debt, the process of canceling a debt that has been accrued. A person sins against you, it's like swiping their credit card. Now they're in debt to you. And now something has to be done. That debt has to be settled. If it's not settled, then there is some level of rift in the relationship. And the problem is we tend to do that and do that and do that and do that, and and the wall gets thicker and thicker until you realize now husband and wife, they're really just roommates, and it won't be long before they're thinking about divorce. And because they've allowed sin to disrupt their fellowship, and it's layer upon layer upon layer, and it shouldn't be that way. And the way to deal with it is to engage in what I'm calling transactional forgiveness. It's, it's the process by which you go to the person that you've offended, and you ask them to do something that you don't deserve. Namely, would you please cancel my debt? I did this, I I sinned against you, and what I did was wrong, and it was a sin against God, and it was a sin against you, and I feel horrible about it. It must have made you feel horrible. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And you know what? When two believers are, are walking in the Spirit, and that kind of thing is happening on a regular basis, your relationship with one another, oh my, it's harmony. It's precious. And if you haven't done that in a long time, if you haven't done it in quite a while, I suspect there's probably not the intimacy between you and that other person, maybe you and your wife or your husband. And I would say this. Take this seriously. Sit down with one another. Talk about it. Confess sin to one another. If you need help with that, I can help you. Confess sin to one another 
everyone that you can think of, do it biblically, and you know what, what it'll be like? I mentioned this last week. It'll be like you get born again. The, res- the restoration of that unity, there's just nothing like it in all the world. It's like falling in love again. We do this all the time in our biblical counseling ministry, and couples will come in, and they're thinking about divorce, or they're obviously sitting on the opposite sides of the table facing opposite directions, and we lead them through the process of identifying their sin, calling it what God calls it, sitting down and confessing it with one another. We give them, we give them this homework assignment. It's called the log list. It comes out of uh, Matthew 5, right? If you, uh, before you go to pick at the speck in a brother's eye, deal with a log that's in your own. And so we have couples come up with 30 ways they've sinned against each other and confess that biblically. And each person is allowed to add to the list of the other person, only five. But they're allowed to add to the list of sins. And then they confess them to one another. You know what happens when, people, when couples do that? All the antagonism that we saw leading up to that time, gone. Next week, they come in holding hands. Their chairs are pressed up against each other. There's, you know, the counselor doesn't even have to be there. You know, they get everything out of that, that meeting all by themselves. They don't need me anymore. Beloved, this is what can happen in your relationships, whether it's you and your husband or wife or you and your children or or you and someone else in the church. This is what transactional forgiveness is all about. The first person's, uh, the person who sinned, uh, uh, who sinned against you comes and presents his case, or the person who has sinned against comes and presents his case in a gracious, tentative manner. In response, the sinner Uh, confesses his sin, identifying it with a biblical label, acknowledging that he sinned against God and against the other person, and he asks for forgiveness. And the one who's been sinned against then graciously grants forgiveness, remembering the great debt that God forgave for him. It's transactional forgiveness. And by the way, this is exactly what happens when a person becomes a child of God and he's born again. This is what happened to you when you came to Christ. The Holy Spirit came and presented his case against you, and you were smitten. Why now? And why not 10,000 times before when you heard it in the Word of God? It's part of God's providence, his saving sovereignty. He uses the law of God to expose your sin and to smite your conscience so that uh, your understanding of uh, your condition with God becomes clear. You're guilty, you're lost, you're in a desperate condition. And in response, the sinner cries out to God, confessing that the indictment against him is absolutely true. He throws himself upon the mercy of the court, like the publican in the temple who said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, pleading for something that he doesn't deserve, namely the forgiveness of sins. And then God graciously grants a faithful and just forgiveness based on the horrible and bloody sacrifice made for the sinner through his son, Jesus Christ. And what results is eternal reconciliation and sweet fellowship between the sinner and God. And John will tell us in John chapter 1, verse 7, that the same thing can, can be yours with any relationship that you have where both people are seeking to walk in the Spirit Because if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with whom? One another. One another. 
Beloved, this is the ultimate pattern of forgiveness. It's the standard of forgiveness that all our transactional forgiveness is based on. We see it both implicitly and explicitly throughout the New Testament. In fact, another key scripture that demonstrates this essential aspect of the Christian life is found in Matthew 18. Flip back there with me for just a minute. And those of you who are familiar with this text understand that this is the uh, typically known as the church discipline text. What do you do when someone doesn't repent? And um, actually, Jesus covers the whole gamut here. Here's what he says, beginning with verse 15. If your brother sins, this sounds very similar, doesn't it, to the Luke 17 passage? If your brother sins, go to him and show him his fault in private. Do it graciously. Do it tentatively. Ask questions. Don't make accusations. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. End of story. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that they that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where there are two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Beloved, that's not about prayer meeting. That's not about you agreeing in prayer with someone else and receiving what you ask for. That's about discipline. It's about dealing with a brother's sin. It's hard to do. Jesus is acknowledging that. But he's saying sometimes you have to do it. Sometimes two or three of you need to get together and do it. And just know this. When you're making that decision to deal with another person's sin, I'm with you. Do it. Make the call. Do the hard thing. And do it for the glory of God and for the joy of the people who are involved. But you know what? Jesus doesn't stop here. And I would be remiss if I didn't continue on. He continues on here about forgiveness. Because when Peter hears all of this, he says in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus, uh, Peter thought that was noble. Peter thought, well, that's magnanimous. I'm going to say seven times. And, uh, and Jesus says, no, not seven times. 70 times 7. In other words, don't ever, 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 ever stop forgiving. Because God, that's how God treats you every day. Every day. Now watch this. He follows this up with a little parable. For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And he had begun, when he began settling uh, with them, one who owed him 10,000 Talents. Now, if you have a note on that, um, a talent uh, is a talent was worth more than fifteen years' wages, and this guy owes him ten thousand. This is well over two hundred thousand years of wages. It's like he somehow he squandered the gross domestic product of their entire country. And that's what he wants us to see here. This is no small amount. This is not just every, mo- every dollar he ever owned. This is all of the money anybody has ever owned. And he lost it. 
But since he did not have it, verse 25, he did not have the means to repay, obviously. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So, verse 26, the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion. Isn't it so much like the Lord? And released him and forgave him the debt. 200,000 years worth of debt. But that slave, verse 28, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. A a denarius was one day's wages. Uh, Owed him a hundred days. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what was happening, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And verse 32, then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with, not compassion this time, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you, Jesus says, if each of you does not forgive his brother, how? From the heart. Now, this is a stern warning. This is a really, really stern warning. You're not going to be forgiving? You forget how much was forgiven you? Don't you remember the 250,000 years of debt you owed? And in an instant, I cleared your debt. What manner of people should you be now? You should be reconcilers and forgivers. And if you aren't, oh, if you aren't, if you forget how much you've been forgiven and require the pound of flesh from those who sin against you, woe to you. Woe to you. The point, beloved, is that we need to learn this. That's what Jesus is saying in a nutshell We need to learn this. God has graciously given us the remedy for sin. Remember in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan provides a vial of nectar to Lucy that when she applies it will heal any wound? What a picture. The remedy of forgiveness applied to any sin will heal every guilty conscience and restore any relationship. And think about what happens when you don't. Apply the remedy of sin to your life. You want to see what that's like? Turn to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32. He starts off in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute his iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. It's so wonderful to be forgiven. But watch what he says. David remembers what it was like 
before he asks the Lord to forgive him. And he says this, verse 3, Psalm 32, verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Vitality there means health. My life, my body started to to dry up. And I I became sick physically, sick and this is this is a frequent occurrence as in our uh, in Calvary biblical counseling ministry we we find people like this all the time they come in and there's there's such bitterness and anger and um, lack of forgiveness in their heart and their marriage struggles constantly they may be on the brink of divorce relationship relationship issues with their kids and they're just eaten up and they come in and they've got they've got all of these physical symptoms and we do what all good biblical counselors do. We send them to a doctor. You know, find out what's wrong with your body. And they go in and the doctor says, there's nothing physically wrong with you. You have other problems. And we'll probably write you a prescription for a anti-anxiety or an antipsychotic or, or whatever. Don't be too quick to take that stuff, by the way. Um, but here's what's really going on. What David describes goes on again and again and again. And you know what? When we, when we find these people, when they come and we find out the doctor is consistently saying, your problem's not physical, it's, it's spiritual, it's emotional, or, or something's going on in your soul. Well, that's what the Word of God was written for. It is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so what do you do? We start digging around in the heart and you find out what's going on. What is, where is their lack of forgiveness? Where is their unconfessed sin? Where is a, a failure to seek reconciliation with someone close to you or with God? How are you suppressing that sin? And you know what? So many times we've seen that as people reconcile with God and reconcile with one another, guess what happens to their physical symptoms? They're gone. And it's, it looks like a miracle. And it's just what God always said would happen. Look at the warning here. Verse 9. Or verse 5. Here's, here's, what, here's what David did. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 9. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near you. You know, so often we're like that. You just, you're so proud, you don't want to own your sin, and so you got to be like a you got to have the medications to prop you up, or you, you got to have some constraints to keep you under control, or... or or something outside of yourself, maybe you got to have the police come and pick you up and take you away. That happens if you don't deal with your sin. Don't be like a dumb ox. Don't be like a donkey. In verse 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Chesed. It's the Old Testament word for grace. Grace will surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. All of you who, as he says in verse 1, know the blessing of having your sin, your transgressions, forgiven. Forgiven. I was saying to someone recently, you know, there are some people in our congregation um, who when I'm up here and I have the opportunity to see the congregation worship and I see people worship with tears and with raising hands sometimes and I can, I can hardly keep from weeping because I know their story. I know how much they've been forgiven. And I'll tell you what, those who have been forgiven much love much. Love much. And we have the, the uh, warning of Proverbs 28, 13. Proverbs 28, 13. Just flip over. It's not too many pages to the right. Proverbs 28, 13. Here is what the author says. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He'll find compassion. You suppress that sin, you hide it, it's just going to grow. It's like a mushroom, it's like a fungus, it likes darkness. And the more darkness it keeps, the more darkness you give it, the more it grows. How do you kill the thing? Get it out in the light. Put it under the full Texas sun, put it under the God's God's holy spotlight. It'll shrivel up and die. It's the nature of sin. And by the way, James chapter 5 Verses 14 through 16, we're not going to unpack all of this, but turn there with me if you will. Hebrews, James, chapter 5. And notice uh, verses 14 and 15. James is dealing specifically with illness here, but watch how he deals with it. If anyone among you is sick, James 5, 14, he must call for the elders of the church and They are to pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered with faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And, watch this, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Isn't that interesting? That the prayer for healing and the confession of sin go together. Do you realize that there are occasions when people are sick because of their sin? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that's always true. It wasn't wasn't true of Job. Um, But there are some occasions. You remember Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 dealing with the issue of the Lord's Supper and people coming and taking it in an unworthy manner. And Paul said, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have died. That's serious. Sometimes your illness is connected with your sin. And so James' prescription here, if you get really bad sick, uh, call the elders. And they'll come and pray for you. They'll anoint you with oil. Not like some ceremonial thing. I think it was more medical because of the word there. Isn't the ceremonial word? It it means literally to rub, like to massage. That was their medical treatment. 
And so call for the elders, and they're going to come. And you know what the elders are going to do if you call us? We're going to follow this passage to a T. And we're going to say, I'm so sorry that you're sick, and your cancer's back, or whatever it is. But here's our first question. Any sin in your life that you've been unwilling to address? Any sin? Because it doesn't matter what kind of medication we give. If this is a soul issue, if this is a heart issue, if this is an issue between you and God or another person, then all of the prayers and the medical treatment and anything else that we give you is going to be useless. And so the question is, first question, and, and, and let me just say this generally. You get really bad sick, you know what your first thought should be? Lord, have I sinned? Have I sinned? Granted, maybe not. Maybe maybe I just grabbed a doorknob after some snotty kid at church grabbed the doorknob, or I don't know. Maybe it's just God wanting you to lay up for a little while and, and trust him that he's sovereign and he's in control. And once in a while, we need to be reminded, you are not. You're not all-powerful. You're mortal. And sometimes you just need to be laid out. That may be the reason. But you know what? Our first response, we should be walking so closely with the Spirit and understanding our own propensity to sin so well that our first thought might be, I wonder, I wonder if there's unconfessed sin in my heart. And that may not be the issue, but you know what? <laughs> the Lord will love it if you go there. If you apply in the gospel to, your, to yourself that liberally, even if your diagnosis is wrong, you'll think of some things to confess. And it'll be good for you. And so here James wonders if perhaps your illness, your physical illness, has something to do with your sin. And, and, and psychologists... In psychology, they have a term called, it, it, it's psychosomatic. And actually, it's a good term. Uh, we, we, um, uh, we don't go the psychology route around here. We believe in the sufficiency of the word of God. But think about this term, psychosomatic. If you know any Greek, soma means body, and psycho or psyche, psuche in the Greek, means soul. Soul and body, that's what that word means. Psychosomatic illness. It's an illness that involves not only your body, but your soul, or it's caused by something that's going on in your soul. Physicians understand this. Any physician, you don't have to be a believer to understand that if there's things that are going, into your, in, uh, going on in your heart, they might call them emotional problems or uh, some kind of a, a, um, uh, uh, a mental breakdown or something. These are soul issues. If those kinds of things are going on in your soul, of course they're going to have an effect on your body. Of course they are. Here's my point with all of this. If you harbor an unforgiving spirit or an unrepentant spirit in your heart, that's where you're going. And some of you hearing my voice right now are there. And I'm wanting you to see God's remedy. I'm wanting you to see God's remedy. And so there's this transactional forgiveness by which you as the sinner go to the offended party. That may be God, that may be another person or both. And you go to them and they said, and you say, remember when I did or said these things? That was a sin against God. I realized that. And I'm so sorry. There's a sin against you and a sin against God. It must have made you feel awful. And I need to ask your forgiveness. Will you give me what I don't deserve? Will you forgive me? 
And if that person's walking with the Lord, you know what they'll say? They'll say, Christ has forgiven me. I forgive you. And you know what? If you're living like that in your home, if you and your wife are having those kinds of conversations a lot, and you should, because again, you're a sinner. If you were a dog, you would bark. If you were a fish, you would swim. You're a sinner, so just get over yourself. You're not going to be perfect. You know, just tear down the facade and understand that you are a sinner. You're going to sin. And the God, God has offered you the gospel to expose your sin and to give you the confidence that in Christ, that sin is already forgiven. And because of that, you now have the freedom to own it, to confess it, and to ask for what you don't deserve, namely forgiveness. And beloved, if you're doing that and you're teaching your kids to do that, between services I was talking with someone about this and I said, you know, uh, if you do that and you're effective with it, teaching your children, they'll grow up to be each other's best friends instead of hating each other. And you'll have a marriage that people will look at and say, wow, that's different. I wish my marriage was like that. They, they must be compatible or something. <laughs> and it's not. Nobody is compatible. You put two sinners together, especially if they have competing idols, doesn't take long. The salient principle here that governs this problem of um, how to do this appropriately is in Mark eleven twenty five, and Andrew read that for us a little while ago. I want you to turn there. Because here's the question. So you want to do transactional forgiveness. What does an obedient, spirit-filled believer do when a brother does not respond well to a gentle and just rebuke? What do you do then? You see somebody who has sinned, or they've sinned against you, and you go to them. Maybe it's your wife or your husband. And you say, you know, when you did that, help, help me understand what was going on there. Because that, that, that looked, sounded sinful to me. And they get angry and they stomp off and they make excuses and they, whatever. What do you do then? Mark eleven twenty five tells us what to do then. This is another example of the sufficiency of Scripture. You got a new question? The Scripture has a new answer. And so here we go. 11.25, whenever you stand praying, what's the next word? Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that is, if someone, if, if what comes to mind is that someone has sinned against you, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. See the connection here? Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. He talks about living with your wife in an understanding way, treating her with respect and honor as a fellow heir of the grace, great, uh, fellow heir of, the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see, your relationship with those around you affects your relationship with God. You expect that God's going to be forgiving of you and your sin and you're not forgiving of other people? But notice, notice how he lays this out. Whenever you stand to pray, forgive, forgive. Here's a brother who's standing, perhaps in a worship service or a prayer meeting. Perhaps he's in his own favorite quiet place for prayer in the morning. He's having his quiet time in his favorite chair with his favorite cup of coffee. And he's, 
He may be standing with his arms lifted to heaven to commune in fellowship with his Lord, and he has recently been stung by a sinful word or an action of a brother or he's been gossiped about or slandered or, or whatever the, the common sin. And as he's standing to pray, he, maybe in church, he looks over and he sees that brother and the transaction of forgiveness hasn't taken place yet. What do you do now? The Lord said, um, if you do nothing, you're in trouble. And so what should you do? Forgive. That doesn't mean you write a note and you pass it down the aisle and the brother opens it and it says, I forgive you. (laughs) That's not going to help. You're just going to intensify the situation and complicate the problem. Don't go up to him after the service and say, brother, I forgive you. That's not God's way, and you're just going to make it worse. You're just going to ins- add insult to injury. Don't do it. He's talking about something that takes place in your heart. And he says this, whenever you stand praying, forgive. You see a brother who sinned against you, forgive him. And here's, here's, what, here's what I think he's saying. This is not transactional forgiveness. This is not transactional forgiveness. Now remember, we talked about last time, there's no such thing as transactional forgiveness without repentance. In other words, if a transaction doesn't happen, then then the forgiveness is incomplete, right? But this is a different kind of forgiveness. We call this attitudinal forgiveness or heart forgiveness, and you apply it in those cases where you haven't had time to approach the person to deal with it transactionally, or else they're resistant to your dealing with it transactionally, or they're dead, or unavailable, or both. Um... Sometimes even I'm astounded. (laughs) Here's the danger here. (laughs) You should try doing this sometime. It's not as easy as it looks. (laughs) So here's the danger. The person who has been sinned against, when you are sinned against and you realize it, you're in in the immediate danger of falling into a state known as bitterness. And when that happens, the original injury gets mulled over and mulled over. Now, you guys, most of you didn't grow up in the north like I did, where there's lots of snow. We used to love it when it snowed. We used to pray for snow. And, and one, of, one of the wonderful things about snow, especially a good wet snow, if it's not too cold out, just, just enough to make snow, you can get a little snowball and start rolling it down the hill. And you know what? Uh, it's so cool because that thing just gets bigger. Just big. In fact, it, it's become a euphemism. We say when a, when a problem gets real big, we say, oh, it's snowballed, right? It means it, it just got bigger really, really fast. And it's great if you're building snowmen. It's terrible when it's bitterness because it'll kill you. You know, anger, rage is when you take the dart and you throw it at someone else. You know what bitterness is? You take the dart and you swallow it. The person it's killing is not the other person. It's you. It's you. And it's your testimony. And it's your joy. And you're poisoning the fruit of the Spirit in your life because of bitterness. 
First there was the harm done by the one who sinned against you from the outside. Then there comes this malignant disease of bitterness that begins eating away at you from the inside. It cannot be allowed, beloved. God makes no allowance for bitterness. You say, well, I can't change the other person. You're right. In as much as it depends upon you, Paul says in Romans 12, in as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Try to engage in the transaction. But if there's resistance or there's some inability for whatever reason that you can't communicate with that person or they're unresponsive to the communication as you're seeking the transaction, you still have responsibility. You may not be able to do anything with them, but you can do something with God, and you can do something with your own soul. Just as David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? You can say to your soul, why are you so bitter, O my soul? Remember, remember how much you've been forgiven. Put your hope in God and forgive. I want you to notice here that in this verse, whenever you stand to pray, there's no interaction with any other person. It's just forgive. Forgive. You go into your, you know, every time when someone comes to sin against you, it's like they swipe their credit card. And it shows up on your record book. Red. They owe me however bad the sin was. You stand to pray. The first thing you do before you go to worship God in any way, shape, or form, whether it's giving in the offering, whether it's praying, whether it's singing these wonderful prayer songs, you reach over to your debt meter and you hit delete. For the glory of God, delete. Lord, here is my offering in the offering plate, and here is my deletion of anyone who has sinned against me, their sin. And here's what you're really doing. You put these two together. You say, what about the transaction? Still have to do that. Still have to pursue that. But here's what you're saying to God. God, the person who sinned against me didn't do anything anywhere near as bad as what I did against your son. The debt that I need to forgive is so much smaller. It's infinitesimally small compared to, to the debt that you forgave me. Therefore, I will not hold it against this brother or sister who sinned against me. And I am ready, I am ready. Already in my heart, I've forgiven them. And now, God, if you give me the opportunity, we'll make it official. Give me the opportunity to have that conversation where by your grace they ask for forgiveness, and I will freely grant it. I grant it now before you. But, Father, I desire that my relationship with that person be restored. Give me the opportunity to make it whole. You see the connection? I want to engage in the transaction, but until that moment, I forgive from my heart. I don't allow bitterness. This is the remedy not only of sin, beloved, but of bitterness as well. It's the healing nectar of attitudinal forgiveness. When you stand to pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone. And notice, this is not just offered as a good psychological idea Jesus comes up with here. If you care to take his advice, no. He's not Oprah. He's not Dr. Phil. This is man. He's Lord. He is God. He doesn't say, take it or leave it. Hey, this is what I think. Maybe you should try this. No, it's obey. If your relationship with God 
it will certainly be disrupted if, if you don't forgive from the heart. We're simply not permitted to indulge in the sin of bitterness in response to someone's unacknowledged sin against us. But you know, it's, it's real easy to play Russian roulette with this command. It's very tempting for us to say, oh, I have forgiven from the heart when clearly you haven't. Clearly you haven't. You see, the Word of God um, doesn't just command us to do something in the secret recesses of our heart without giving us a litmus test, something that we can see on the outside, that other people can see or not see, and therefore diagnose whether or not you've really given up the bitterness or you've really forgiven or not. You see, the Word of God doesn't doesn't leave us hanging here. It, it, it gives us a very clear standard by which we can evaluate whether or not we have done business with God and with our own hearts. How do we know whether we or someone close to us is responding to sin either with attitudinal forgiveness or with complicating sin of bitterness? How do you know? Let me suggest an answer for you. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Because in Galatians chapter 5, we have a passage that you all are very familiar with, and most of you, especially you Awana kids, can quote this, right? First, he gives us the deeds of the flesh, but then he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, but... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no, what's the word? Law. And I wonder how many of us have memorized this, and we got to the end of the fruit of the Spirit, and Paul's little tagline at the end, against such things there is no law, and we go, I don't know what that means, whatever, and keep going. And that's what I've always thought. Until I had to deal with the issue of forgiveness. And how do you know if you've really forgiven? From the heart. Now before we get into this verse, let's look at the context. The church here in Galatia was experiencing some, some really significant relational conflicts. We know this because Paul address, addresses it throughout chapter 5. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What's the implication there? They were turning their liberty into an opportunity for the flesh and weren't serving one another. That's why he has to say it. And look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, now why did he have to say that? Because they were biting and devouring one another. We call this uh, spiritual cannibalism. They get together, and it's always piranha hour. You know, they start biting and nibbling at each other. You just can't say a nice word. It's like Lucy said uh, to, to Linus. You remember the old uh, Peanuts cartoons? And uh, Linus walks into the room, and, uh, or, or Charlie Brown walks into the room, and, and Lucy looks at him, and she says, You know, it happens to me every time I see you. And he says, What? And she said, I feel a criticism coming on. 
You just want to pick. You just, I mean, you just can't see anything right in the other person, and it drives you crazy, and it ruins your relationship. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not, what's the next word? Consumed by each other. That's where relationships fall apart. What's the antidote? Well, look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in, the, in one word, in the statement. Now, stop there. Now, if, if I didn't know the rest of this verse, and if you haven't looked at it, you might be thinking, wow, the whole law is summed up in this one statement. What could that be? And my mind would go, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment, right? Paul completely skips it. Why? Because he's dealing with relational problems. And so he says this, the whole law. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They were having problems doing that. And then he gives this, um, this list, the deeds of the flesh. I mean, most of these here, you do them with other people. A number of them are sexual sins. And then he he contrasts it with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, And here's what he says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now think about that with me. Relational context. What does love here mean? You ever just look at your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you think, oh, I just love them. I just feel pitter-patter, warm wind up the back of the neck, quiver in the liver. I got it bad. That's not love. It's not love. It can be a part of love, the original side of love. But you know what love is? Sacrifice. To love is to give what you have that they need because God wants you to. For God so loved the world that he gave Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the definition of love. To give what you have that they need. Why? Because God wants you to. Regardless of how you feel toward that person, this person's been nipping at you, they've been biting and devouring, trying to ruin you, or saying malicious things about you, or saying things to you, or doing things that are against you. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, evidenced when you go to that person who has made himself your enemy and you love him. Joy. What is joy? Joy is very much an emotional thing, and it's something that we experience together. Peace. Not the peace of past, that passes all understanding here. It's not this inward thing, oh, I feel so peaceful. This is peace between people who would be at each other's throats if it weren't for the grace of God. And you just go on through the the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Do you feel a feeling of patience? Is that an emotion? No, if you think it is. If you think you feel patient, it's probably because you're not under any stress. Nobody's really bugging you. You get somebody in there who starts drumming their, their fingers on the table when you're trying to study, or they start talking to their neighbor when they're having your quiet time, or, you know, maybe they're just an annoying person, and every time you see them, you feel criticism coming on. Um, 
Patience, that's the true test of patience. It's not you and Jesus, it's you and the other person. Kindness, you can't do that alone. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these in this context are relational. These are the, 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 the nine delicious fruits that, that everyone around you ought to be able to pick from you every moment if you're walking in the Spirit. And here's the kicker. Even the people who've sinned against you. Now there's that last phrase. Against such things there is no law. Think of this. This is, this is my best understanding of this so far. Someone's going to sin against you or already has. You see them in church and you think, um, I'm not going to talk to them. They might think I'm not upset at what they did and what they did was sinful. And since we haven't reconciled, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to them. I don't, I don't want to be joyful around that person. They might think all is forgiven. And, and indeed, I, I want it to be forgiven, but um, I'm, I'm really kind of bitter at them. Um, I'm going to be peaceful. I'm, I'm not going to pick a fight. I'm going to be patient, but kind. I'm not going to go out of my way. I mean, birthday, they're not getting a present from me. Why? Because if I do that, if I show them kindness and grace and love, they might completely misunderstand. They might think that it's okay that they sinned against me that way and it really didn't bother me at all and, and all is forgiven and there's no problem between us. Therefore, I'm going to withhold those things from them until they repent. That's what needs to be done. And Paul's saying, where'd you get that law? Show me the law. Show me where you got that idea. Is it, is it in Deuteronomy? Is it in Exodus? Is it in Second Hesitations? Where, where did you get it? Against such things there is no law. You say, well, that's it's hard. It's hard. Your husband sinned against you? And you're supposed to be sweet to him? No, don't misunderstand. You need to deal with the sin and attempt to do it transactionally. Graciously, asking questions, not making accusations. Especially if you're the wife, you need to be respectful. If you're the husband, you need to be loving when you do this. But if for whatever reason, the person's unwilling to reconcile at that point or own their sin, guess what you do? Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Want to see another place where this is dealt with? Turn to Romans chapter 12. Here's what he says. Never pay back evil for evil, Romans 12, 17. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. You know what it is when you give them the cold shoulder? Or you see that person in church and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. You know what that is? We say you, you need to confess things using biblical terms. You know what the biblical term for that is? Revenge. I'm just going to pretend you're dead. Or at least invisible. Oh, didn't see you there. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, verse 18, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I've told you this many times. There's this one instance in in our marriage. I don't know why this stands out. It was just such a perfect picture to me of this. My wife and I had a fight. Who knows what it was about? I went back into my room to to study. It always looks spiritual if you're studying the Word of God when you're mad. (laughs) And... uh, and I'm back there for a long period of time, not wanting to come to dinner or anything. And an uh, hour or two goes by, and I hear a knock on the door. She's already given me the look I talked about last week, and I was unrepentant. And uh, I hear a knock at the door. Well, come in. And here she comes with a very gentle smile on her face. And she's got a little tray. She's got a cup of coffee and a brownie or something. And just said, I know you've been back here studying for a long time and thought you might be blessed by this. And she just smiled. She kissed me on the hand, set it down on my desk, and walked away. I mean, it was like fire on my head. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you do warfare, beloved. You love. You love. And what did it make me do? It, it provoked me to say, oh, God, I am so stupid. I mean, why does she get to be the one to initiate the repentance? Why wasn't it me? And it doesn't take long after that. You know what? You're not drawing up swords. You're not, you're not pulling out your daggers against one another. You're ranking yourself under. You're becoming one another's servant. And you're saying... Can we just talk about this problem for a minute? And I want to do the talking. Just listen. The reason we're having a trouble here is because of my sin. And here's my contribution to this problem. Best I can see it. Would you help me see it more clearly? And after it's explained, you say, thank you. I understand it better now. And you're right. And when I did that, and you may be thinking, This is like one one one-hundredth part of a 100% problem. But you take your one little 1% and you say, I did that. Maybe it's 90%. Maybe you did the whole thing. But by God's grace, you have the capacity in Christ to say, I did that and it was wrong. And will you forgive me? Beloved, that's the remedy. That's the remedy. When you combine attitudinal forgiveness, heart forgiveness that's willing to forgive at the drop of the hat, and you're the one with the hat getting ready to to throw it down at any turn, your marriage, as Jay Adams says, you're going to have a marriage that sings. You're going to have a marriage that looks like Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. You're going to have kids who actually like each other some of the time. Okay, half the time, three-quarters of the time. And to the degree they learn to do this, they'll love each other and you. Here I think it's the best way to understand this phrase, against such things there is no law. There's never a time, even when you're offended, 
There's never a time that God allows you to stop manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, even to the people who've offended you. What do you do if a person slaps you on the cheek with some sinful word or action? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek means do not repay wrong for wrong. Whether... Rather, we respond to sin in a a mature, Christ-like way. When the opportunity is right, we address the issue privately. We pursue transactional forgiveness. And whether the offending party responds well or not, we keep on walking in the Spirit with the Lord, exhibiting before one another, even the offender, the fruit of the Spirit. And periodically, you go back to that person and say, Hey, I love you. I hope I've demonstrated that. Can we talk about this issue? And if the answer is no, you continue forgiving from the heart, you continue pursuing that until reconciliation happens. Who knows, this kind of undeserved kindness and graciousness may be just the thing the Lord uses to bring the offender to repentance, just like the unbelieving husband in 1 Peter 3, 1, who is in constant disobedience to the word, yet he is one to Christ, how? Without a word, by the chaste and respectful behavior of his believing wife. What's she doing? She's showing him the fruit of the Spirit. Even though he's a booger to get along with, and he's, he's vile, and he's not treating her right. That's what Peter is saying. Don't respond to sin with sin. Peter's saying that God may very well use the fruit of the Spirit in that believing woman's life to bring her husband to true, genuine transactional forgiveness, both with God and with you. But one thing is certain. He will never use her sin for that purpose. If it's the husband... Just know for certain, God is never going to use your sin to bring your wife to repentance. He will use your holiness. He will use your kindness. He will use your joy. He will use your love, but he will not use your sin. That's not helpful. That's that's how the problem began in the first place. So what's he saying? Don't respond with sin for sin. When you're sinned against in a way that breaks fellowship between you and another person, address the issue privately and graciously, calling them to the joy of transactional forgiveness. And as you wait for that to happen, commit yourself to the kind of attitudinal or heart forgiveness that's evidenced to all by the fruit of the Spirit, the sweet fruit of the Spirit hanging all over your life. I mean, here's here's the thing. Your life should be so full of the fruit of the Spirit that even if someone has sinned against you, and you do have reason to take offense, that all they see in your life is love for Christ and love for people. And they would never know that someone has harmed you unless there was some appropriate occasion for you to say so. But rather, here's what we do. When someone sins against us, we put on the frowny face. Ashes on your head or something. You change your attitude. And we shouldn't be like that. God has given us a prescription for it. God has given us a prescription. And you know what, beloved? We want to be a holy church? We want to be a unified church? 
The two things go together. If you deal with sin, you will have joy. If you deal with sin in your own heart and in the people who are close to you, you deal with it graciously, tenderly, like a father would his children, like a child does his father, there will be joy. And beloved, this is why we practice church discipline at Calvary Bible Church. It's not to be mean-spirited. It's because we love the joy. We love to see reconciliation happen. We love to see two brothers or sisters who are antagonistic toward one another forgive each other and be completely reunited in their relationship. And, And so often we've seen, as that happens with a husband and wife, the latter state is, is far better than anything they'd, pre- they'd previously experienced. And they'll tell each other, 25, 30 years into the marriage, they'll look at each other and say, you know what? <laughs> you remember when we were 22 years old and we got married? Yeah. I love you more now than I ever did then. That's joy. But it cannot happen between sinners unless God's remedy is always, always, always at the ready to be liberally applied to the issues of sin. Father, we thank you that you have liberally given it to us and we have more than enough to share with one another. And Lord, I, you know I have... I have needed this from my wife so many, many times and from my children. And you have freely given it. I praise you, Father, for so many men and women here who know exactly what I'm talking about and who have made this a habit in their life to deal with sin in their relationship biblically. And for others, Father, who are here or hearing my voice now, this is new There's some complexity to this, I realize, but, oh, Father, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit and help them not only to understand it, but to take the risks involved in liberally applying it to the relationships that need it. I pray that you'd be glorified in them as they do the hard thing for their own joy and for your great glory. Lord, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.